kind of a bittersweet Sunday, I would say. I, I, I don't have any palm leaves to throw out to officiate this Palm Sunday, but um, if I did, I would throw them out. Um, anyway, this morning, uh, we're going to continue on our study in First Peter, and we're going to be just covering five verses this morning that I'm going to try to get through, and then I just wanted to share um, with you guys a little bit, just from my heart, and bring my wife up here and share with you guys. Um, to reiterate two things that Angela went through, just because I don't think we can talk about it enough. One, next week we need tons of volunteers for Easter, and so if you're capable and you can serve, part of what it means to be um, part of a family, a body of Christ, to be connected to a church is to actually serve, and there's no better Sunday for you to serve than next Sunday because there's so many guests that will fill this building next week, and it's an awesome opportunity for the church to be the church and to come serve those that are our guests next Sunday. Is Easter is one of the, um, the, the most highly populated church services or um, days of the year, and so I just encourage you guys to write something on one of your cards or fill out one of those serve cards so you can um, serve next Sunday. And then second, how many of you guys remember Tim Timberlake when he was here like two years ago? Just an awesome, awesome man. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He's from North Carolina. And uh, he was in town a couple years ago and preached here on a Sunday. And he happened to be in Spokane speaking at a conference last night. And so um, offered to come over tonight and speak at this uh, community-wide worship gathering. And so I just encourage you guys to come back tonight and see many churches gathered in this place to worship Jesus and then have Tim sort of um, preach the place down, I guess, bring the heat and challenge us all. So I encourage you guys to be there. So anyhow, dive in. First um, Peter chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 18 and work our way through 22. Actually, let's go back to 17 <clears throat> to pick up at the end of last week. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during, which the, construction of, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Uh, I wanted to tell a, a brief story of my last three days. So how many of you in this room have ever replaced a garage door on your house before? It's an amazing experience, isn't it? Um, I, our garage door broke a couple weeks ago, and I am just the kind of guy that goes and studies things and tries to research and figure out where I could get the best deal and which garage door I could get. And I ended up finding this great deal on a garage door in Spokane on Craigslist. It was like a third of the price of any other garage door I could find. I'm like, this is awesome. So I go over there to go pick up this garage door from this warehouse, and I'm having this conversation with 
uh, the men in this warehouse that are helping me load up all the stuff. And my eyes were huge because I'm like, I thought I was getting a door, but I got like a door and all these metal pieces and other boxes and all these rods and attachments. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And the guy's like, this is a big job. I had no idea. I was just going to watch a YouTube video and throw this thing up. And so um, I've done it so many other times with so many other things, right? And so uh, I, I get all these parts of this garage door and uh, loaded in my trailer, and the guy looks at me and he's like, listen, he's like, be careful with that spring when you go to put that thing on. You will rip your hand off. I'm like, all right. That sounds fairly intense. And uh, then the guy goes, um, I just would, I would rather see a successful garage door installed than see you in the obituaries tomorrow. I'm like. <laughs> so I, I go home with this garage door. I'm like, honey, I'm home. Look at this awesome garage door I got. And then I'm like, the guy told me I could die or lose a hand doing this. And there's a thousand pieces in the trailer. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I attempted to install, install a garage door for 48 hours. And... <laughs> It's still not done, and I'll probably call a professional on Monday morning. And so <laughs> while I was putting together this garage door, I was reading the instructions very intently, right? How many of you guys have things where you don't need to read the instructions? You can just figure it out. I figured with a 1,000 pieces and the potential of losing my hand or my life, I should probably read these ones. And so I read every instruction as I went through, and I say all that to say as we get into this passage this morning, um, a lot of what Peter is doing and laying out for the, the folks that he's talking to is giving them instructions and in how they are to exist as believers in a society that hates them. It's not much different than the days we live in now. We have said from day one with Anthem that this is a church that is all about Jesus. It's on everything we do. We've said from day one that we hold this Bible in high regard as the word of God that he's given us. And, and so as we approach life in the day and age that we live in, you better believe it that God has given you the blueprints by which to live. He's given you the instruction manual, and yet most of us go through life as though we're putting together Legos. And we just kind of set this thing down and we'll, like, we'll figure it out along the way. And I want to encourage you this morning that life is not like that thing that you can put together without instructions. Life is like a garage door. There's a million pieces to it. There's the potential to lose your life in the midst of it. And if you do not get grounded in this word, you have no chance of making it through in a way that honors Jesus with the life that he's given you. And so as Peter dives into this, the, the, this section in his letter that he's writing to these folks, this church that is being persecuted on behalf of Jesus, you, you need to understand that there's a weight there, there, there's, a, there's a weight of responsibility that he's laying on them, and he's not guilting them, but he is telling them there's a way that a follower of Jesus needs to live in the midst of the world that 
they've been placed in at the time that they've been placed in so that they become the flavor to the land, so that people see Christ in them in all things, not in the good, but in the bad. I mean, what he's encouraging them in over and over again is this idea of suffering for the cause of Christ, suffering for what's doing good. He said last week as we ended on verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter knows that he's writing to a church that is under this threat of persecution, and he's writing to encourage perseverance in their life, to encourage faith in their life, in the face of the coming storm that's hitting them. And last week, we ended with this exhortation from Peter to a church facing all these trials and, and tribulations, but in order for us to understand what this paragraph is about that we're reading through this morning, verses 18 through 22. I want to help us figure out how it relates to everything that comes before it and what comes after it. So we have a proper context of what it is Peter's trying to do with these five verses. So again, just before this, as we ended last week, is this passage about it being better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right versus doing what is wrong. Sometimes in our lives, it is God's will that we suffer for doing what is right. And that sounds, that's, that's like the taboo word in church, right? Submission and suffering, the two things you don't want to talk about on Sunday mornings, both the things that we've talked about in the last month. These are difficult things for Christians to understand today. To suffer for doing what is right. Like, why would God allow me to suffer for doing everything that he told me to do? And his word says that there are times in which he wills it so, that you would suffer for what's doing, suffer in what's doing right, for what do, doing what is right. And I don't think this is an easy thing for us to hear. If you're anything like me, I read a passage like this and I think, like, I need help with this in my own life, to really understand the place of suffering in my life. We need to understand, and we need encouragement, and we need hope if God's going to will that we suffer for doing what is right. And so in verse 18, coming out of him saying this, he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ also died, he suffered, for sins, once for all. And this word for shows us the, that Peter's beginning to explain why it is sometimes God wills for us to suffer for doing what is right. So the paragraph begins as this explanation or a, a reason for the call to suffer as a Christian for doing what's right. And then I want you to see the connection between this paragraph and what follows in chapter 4. So then if you fast forward real quick to Chapter 4, verse 1, which we'll be in in a couple weeks, he says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. That sounds encouraging, right? Just like Jesus suffered, arm yourselves, prepare to suffer as well. And he calls this purposeful. So what is this same purpose that Peter's referring to? It's the purpose to suffer for doing what's right, like Christ did. So just before this, this whole passage, again in 3.17, and then just after this text in verse 4.1, the point Peter makes is this. Get ready to suffer for doing what is right. If, if, 
God wills it, and arm yourselves with that purpose. So prepare for this. Get ready for this. Equip yourself. Be strengthened for suffering. So we need to understand the purpose and the opportunity that we have in suffering. Like suffering, it sounds like this wah-wah, this taboo word that we, don't, that we don't want to use in the church because serving Jesus means everything is perfect, right? <laughs> you that have been around longer than I, is that the case? No. But we need to figure out what it looks like to equip ourselves to suffer, to experience hardship, and to actually press on through it, to not allow the hardship and the storms and the suffering that we face in life to immobilize us and back us into a corner to be completely ineffective for the gospel. So Peter's spending this whole section preparing the church to suffer. Understand this. So if this text that we're reading this morning is sandwiched in between Peter's encouragement that it's better to suffer for doing what is right if God wills it, and then a reminder that Christ suffered in the flesh and we need to arm ourselves with the same purpose, then what do you think these five verses in between are meant for? To prepare them for that. To strengthen them for that to help them prepare to suffer with Jesus for doing what's right, not doing what's wrong. So Peter, prior to this in the last couple weeks, as we've been talking, um, spent a bunch of time uh, in the prior chapters talking about what it looks like to do right in life, right? We we had a week where we talked about submission of the believer to the government uh, under authorities. We, We talked about submission of the believer in the workplace to those that are in charge of you, what that looks like. We talked about submission in marriage, and specifically, as Peter was talking about some, how, what submission looks like in a marriage for a wife with a husband that's not a follower of Jesus, what does it look like to submit to that? But Peter's whole point has been to help the, encourage the church in doing what is right in the world as a result of their knowing and walking with Jesus. He wants them to understand what it looks like to be the flavor to the land, to be the salt and the light that Jesus has called us to. So it makes sense that, that, that he makes this statement that it's better to suffer for doing what's right if God wills it versus to suffer for doing what's wrong. Why would Peter want to share that with them? As much as many of us are probably sitting here thinking, like, wah, wah, like, I don't want to talk about suffering. I first want you to think about those that Peter's writing to and see that they're all suffering and probably asking a ton of the same questions that you and I do. Why do we have to suffer? Why do great people have to go through such bad things? If we're believers, should that remove us from the road of suffering in life? But Peter's actually encouraging them again to be the salt and light, to live for Christ, to continue to live for Christ despite what they face on this earth, in this life. And he's reminding them that it's better for them to do what's right in the face of suffering than to suffer as a result of their own sin and their poor choices. It's better for you to do, be obedient, respond as Jesus would call you to respond and face suffering for that than it is to go raise hell in your life and cause a bunch of commotion and do all these crazy things and then suffer as a result of your own wrongdoing. He's saying suffer for doing what's right, be obedient, Follow Jesus, be led by the Spirit. In the face of suffering, continue to press on. Let your life flavor this world with the light of Jesus 
and suffer for what's doing right. And so that's what he's reiterating over and over again. And it's interesting, in the previous verses, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16, um, they describe this scenario in which the, those who persecute Christians are actually attracted to the message that we're speaking. That, that hope, hopefulness in the face of suffering could actually lead people to conviction of their own sinfulness in causing that suffering. That, that in our suffering, we actually have the ability to preach, to be the example of Jesus, and people to be drawn to Christ, even through our suffering. I mean, that's just crazy. That whatever it is you're going through in your life this morning, Jesus can actually use to bring glory to his name and draw people to himself. There's a purpose in suffering. If some of us sit there this morning and we think that this is totally irrelevant to us, it actually is probably because most Americans are so insulated from this bigger world outside of our own little country. Do you know that America only makes up 5%? 5% of the global population. 5%. For most of the world and for most of history, being a Christian was not safe, and it is not today. For most of the world, um, in, in this book called History of Christian Missions, um, this man's talking about the first three centuries when the church was spreading like wildfire, and he says this, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. For three centuries, Every Christian knew that they would have to testify to their faith at the cost of their life. Think about that. Imagine today sharing Jesus in a context where you couldn't make any promises to people that things would go better for them on this earth. Imagine that. Imagine that. But if they believe what it is that you're offering them, they'd actually be risking their lives for it. Does that communicate anything about our current methods that we use to share Jesus with others today. No. Our methods are like, do you want hope? Yeah, I want hope. Do you want peace? Do you, yeah, I want, do you want joy? Yeah, I want joy. All right, we'll come to faith in Jesus. You can have all those things. We don't go to them and say, do, do you want to lay down your life for the cause of Christ? Do you want to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you ready to suffer for doing what's right? in your life, that, that's the real message, right? The, the, the real message is that we find hope in the midst of suffering. The real message is that we're granted joy in the midst of suffering. The real message is that you wanna see the compassion of Jesus get buried in life and then see Jesus's compassionate heart come after you and protect you and watch over you in the midst of it. You want to know Jesus, be prepared to lay down your life for it because 95% of the world that is outside of America, is fully prepared to lay down their lives for the cause of Jesus when they come to faith in Christ. But in America, that's not the message we send. It's a, it's a different gospel. It's this gospel of like, come to faith in Jesus so that all of your problems are removed, so that you become insulated from everything else and you live in this Christian sphere and if you just listen to all the right music and if you just do all the right things and blah, 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 you have this perfect Christian bubble, you'll be protected from everything else that's going on in this life. I mean, 10 years ago, I went to Egypt uh, with a bunch of skateboarders and 
um, there was a couple of guys from our skateboard team whose families would not allow them to go to Egypt because it was so hostile over there and Christians were losing their life, lives for Jesus. And so they said, no, you can't go. Like, we want to protect you from that. And I'm thinking, well, good luck with that. None of the rest of the world has that privilege that we do to say, ah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live the protected life for Jesus but that actually bleeds into the gospel message of Christ that we begin to share with others because it's a false gospel that teaches people that they can actually be removed from all the problems of this world and this life if they put their trust in Jesus. And so what happens when their life falls apart and things get tough and they actually face suffering or trial or persecution in their life? What's the first thing they say? Where's Jesus in the midst of this? You told me if I came to faith in Jesus that I'd be removed from that stuff, that I wouldn't have to face that junk in my life. We preached the false gospel to them. And so Peter's prepping, equipping, teaching this church that sometimes God, sometimes God wills it for you to suffer for doing what's right. Not, not for what's wrong, but for actually doing the right thing, for being obedient, that you would face suffering and that God would actually will it. And why would God do that? So that you, Christians, become the flavor of the land. Light cannot shine without darkness. You can't see light on light. You see light when it comes into darkness. You're the salt of the earth. You're the city that, not can, that cannot be hidden, that Jesus talks about. And to be, war, to, to be honest, I think that this passage is almost like a warning for us Americans because it seems like Christians in America are in this state of frustration with the way that America is. And I don't mean to just rail on America this morning, but we got a lot of stuff going wrong right now. And we need Jesus. Our county needs Jesus. I mean, as, as we have a ch as a church begin to even look at establishing two churches in our county, please know that this is just one step because the next step is three and four and five and six and the next step is going into other states and the next step is planting churches at a progressive rate because we know that that's the only answer in the world we live in is to plant churches to get the gospel message of Jesus out there so that others would come to saving grace and the knowledge of Christ and actually understand how to stand up in the midst of the world that they're immersed in. But it seems like many Christians sit back and they're just frustrated with the way that America is and the direction that it's going. It seems like we think we need to fight back to actually prove our point. It's like Christians have become bitter and mean-spirited towards those that are liberal, those that are secular, towards those elites, because we think that they're taking our Christian country from us. And that is only an American way of thinking that represents 5% of the population over the past 6,000 years. While the rest of the world is going, how do I stand up in the midst of this despite what I'm about to face and trust Jesus with my life? That if he wants to take it, he can take it. But the one thing they aren't going to come after is our soul, because they can't have that. The one thing they can't rob, rob from us is our salvation. And so I want to I blast through five points really quick in this passage. Uh, 
is there's five points that Peter makes here uh, in these five verses that I think strengthen us in the midst of suffering. The first one is this. He, he says again in verse 18, I'll read it again. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. What's Peter's reminder to them here? I mean, sometimes it seems like Peter's reiterating some of the same things over and over. Why does Peter feel the need to continue to reiterate some of the same things over and over? He reminds them that they cannot forget that Jesus suffered as well. You can't forget this. Why did Jesus institute communion? And he said what when he instituted communion? When he did communion with his disciples for the first time, what did he say? He said, do this in what? Remembrance of me. What was it that Jesus wanted them to remember about him? His body on a cross that we could hang on our walls? No. What did Jesus want them to remember? That his body was broken and his blood was shed. And why were his body broken and blood shed? I mean, prophetically speaking, for thousands of years prior, there had been messages from prophets leading up to this point, preparing people for the coming Messiah. He hits the land. Here's Jesus. Nobody thought that the, the, the Messiah, the king, would come in the form of a baby, and sure enough, God sends his son in the flesh, in the form of a baby, to live a sinless, blameless life before mankind. to be wrongfully accused, to take on the sins of the world, to be pinned to that cross. I mean, next week we are celebrating the resurrection life of Jesus, and why is that big? Because Jesus, in being pinned to that cross, took on all of your and I's sin. He bore it all. He shed his blood so that we could be cleansed, that we could be purified, that we could live righteous, holy lives that we did not deserve. By his grace, we were saved through faith in Jesus alone. And so this whole idea of remembering what Jesus did for us is so important in our life because there will be points when you hit a circumstance in your life and you go, oh, what the heck is this? Where's God in the midst of this? What the heck, how am I gonna even stand in the midst of this trial that I'm facing in my life? And the only thing you can back up on is, what did Jesus do for me? Jesus died, a horrific death but he didn't stay there. And Jesus rose again. And Jesus promised us that the same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead actually indwells within you and I that call upon his name as his Lord and Savior. What an awesome thing. So when I face something like Jesus did, I'm not saying like, the, the suffering and the trials I face in my life are anything like Jesus's. But when I suffer in my life, I relate to Christ because I see God himself, the Messiah, the King, King of kings and Lord of lords, was pinned to a cross and suffered brutally on my behalf. But he didn't stay there, did he? They tried to take him. They tried to rob his life from him and Jesus actually rose from the dead and he promised us that that same life would be given to you and I, the resurrection life of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would reside in those of us who would call upon the name of Jesus in our life, that we would be saved. Saved from what? Saved from persecution? No. Saved from what? Hell. 
Saved from eternal torment. Saved from being in bondage to sin in reckless ways in our life. Saved, like completely saved, that by the blood that Jesus shed for us, that you would find eternal life. And so Peter's reminder here is that you can't forget that Jesus suffered as well. Because it reminds us that he went through uh, what Jesus went through to offer us what Jesus offered us. And this should be a really, really amazing encouragement to us. It should prepare us for suffering, uh, for doing what is right in our life. It, that the most loving, that the most caring, that the most faithful, the most truthful, the most holy, the most righteous man that ever lived and walked this planet suffered. And now there's this call for us to suffer, but to not stay down. <laughs> they can take your life, but they can't take your soul. Second thing he says is this. At the end of that, he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. In the second half, he says, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter strengthens us to suffer by telling us that Christ has actually triumphed over our greatest enemy, that God has actually brought us safe to God, that we have found refuge. And some would ask, why would anyone become a Christian if what you could offer them was that the things in this world would probably go worse for them and that their lives would be at risk? Why would anybody do that? But the greatest human needs that we have are not to live long on the earth and be comfortable. That's not it. We've bought the lie that that's it, that we're trying to figure out how to live long, comfortable lives on this earth and not have to go through anything uh, on this earth to be protected, to live in this, this sphere. But the, the, the greatest human needs are actually how to have our sins forgiven how to overcome the separation that existed between man and God, how to find joy in his presence instead of spending eternity elsewhere. That, that's the greatest human need. Honestly, that's a thousand times better, a thousand times more important than living long and comfortably on this life, to have an eternal home. Number three. Verse 19, he goes into this weird section. He says, in which also he went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison. Anybody confused? Um, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. There's a ton of controversy over this, this one passage here and what he's actually trying to say, what he's referring to. And I'm going to sort of give my take on it, I think, the best that I can, I can and help us have some understanding um, of how this relates to the main point that I'm about to make. But I think that Peter's saying, remember the days of Noah. Point three, remember the days of Noah. Um, I, I believe that this passage is, refers to a time when people in Noah's day were totally disobedient. People mocked Noah as this righteous man that was obeying God, um, just like the situation in the lives of Peter's readers that he's writing this to. And that Jesus, 
in the Spirit, what he's saying was sent by God in those days to preach to those people through Noah. And if you remember back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 10 and 11, it said this, As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. There's, there, he's leaning to this idea that the Spirit of Christ was actually in the prophets of old. Now, the Spirit of Jesus was in the, New Test- or in the Old Testament prophets predicting Jesus' coming. So the Spirit of Jesus was actually in Noah. Think about this, preaching to the disobedient people of, Jesus, of Noah's day. Like Jesus was empowering Noah to preach this message, to challenge them. And now, these people that walked away in disobedience, as he's referring to here, are in prison. That is, this place of torment, awaiting their final judgment. They, they walked in disobedience. They did not listen as God's word went out, and God asked them to heed to his word, and it was only Noah and seven others that listened while everybody else ran in disobedience. And Noah's challenging them, and they're running. And I don't think it's much different today is that if the church would rise up and preach the gospel message of Jesus, tell people about who Christ is, what he did on their behalf, and in the fact that he's invited them into this relationship with him, we have the opportunity to see people step out of disobedience, living in a way in their life that is not God-honoring and not having eternal life, not having the forgiveness of their sins, and we get to call them forth. And here's Noah preaching this message and tons walking in in disobedience. And so I I don't take this verse particularly to refer to Jesus going to this place of the dead and preaching to the spirits there, and there's some scholars that actually think that, but it's kind of an an awkward verse. So I, I take this to mean that Jesus went to preach in the days of Noah to people. Through Noah, Jesus preached to these people, to a people that actually rejected the preaching of Noah and now exist in this prison awaiting their final judgment, that they walked away in disobedience. So how does this passage equip us to suffer? One way is that it assures us of the greatness of Jesus, that Jesus isn't bound by space or time, that he was there preaching thousands of years ago through Noah, and he's here speaking today just as he did then. Second, um, that it's better to obey him and suffer than to disobey and be cast into the prison. Like there's people that will choose to not follow Jesus because of the potential pitfalls that come along with following Christ, that they might face suffering. And he's saying it's better to suffer for doing what is right and have eternal life in Christ than it is to walk away in complete disobedience. Fourth thing, he says in verse 21, Corresponding to that, so in light of that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So verse 18 says that that Christ died for sins and brought us to God. In other words, Christ saves us. But here's the question. Who is the us that he's actually referring to when when he mentions this? Who does Christ's death actually save? And verse 21 answers this, those that were baptized. And Peter knows that uh, it's probably going to be misunderstood if he doesn't qualify. And so there's this little dash in there. 
And he says, baptism now saves you. And then he adds this, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but what? An appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not the act of baptizing. It's not the, the immersion necessarily that saves you. It's appealing to God himself. And, and what do we believe is ba- about baptism as a church? We believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, that we are baptized when we go be dipped, like immersed in the water, and we come out, the message that we're sending to the rest of the world is that I choose Jesus because Jesus, by his death and resurrection, actually washed my sins away. He actually purified me as white as snow. He made me righteous, and he made me holy. And when we do that in front of a bunch of people, it's a stand that we're taking. If you guys have ever traveled to third world countries, you know this, that in third world countries, in, in, in especially where uh, they're, like, the Hindu religion or the Muslim religion exists, when people choose to follow Jesus, they don't consider them full-fledged followers of Christ until they go through baptism. Because when they get baptized, it's not the action of immersing them in the water that saves them, it's the proclamation that they have found faith in Christ, that they believe in Jesus, that they're turning away from every other thing that dictates their culture and all the other religions that they have access to, and they're solely focusing on Christ and Christ alone. When they do that, they're completely abandoned by their families and their friends. They're outcasts at that point. And it's really interesting that it's not until baptism that that happens because in those cultures, it sends a huge message to their families and friends that this person is serious. And so for us as believers, when we talk about baptism, we don't believe that baptism saves you. What we believe is that you appealing, like he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, that you appeal to the Lord for a good conscience, that he's the one that wipes you clean, that he's the one that saves you. And when you are baptized, it's this outward proclamation of something that God already has done inside of you. And so Peter's reminder here is to know the meaning of baptism. Because in the midst of suffering, you're gonna have to piggyback on these things. You're gonna have to be reminded that you are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Fifth And the last one that I'll share. Verse 22. He says, Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him? And the fifth one is this. Look to Jesus at God's right hand, who actually has authority over all. This one's pretty stinking amazing. Think about this. The enemy, in all his best attempts to come against you in your life, to thwart what God's doing in you and through you, to cause spiritual warfare to exist around you is actually subject to God. (laughs) The one who's raising havoc on this earth is actually subject to God himself, that all the angels, all the authorities, the powers, the devils, evil spirits, demons, and Satan himself are actually subject to Jesus. When Peter says at the end of 1 Peter 5, uh, end of 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And he says this, resist him firm in your faith. And this is the faith 
that he has in mind, the faith that all angels, that all authorities, all powers are subject to Christ. They're under Christ's authority. And this is what we rebuke and resist with the devil. Honestly, when you get to a place in your life when everything's coming against you and you sense the attack of the enemy in your life, you know that he's working overtime to try to rob you, to steal from you, to destroy you, to devour you. Your best rebuke to the devil is, devil, Satan, remember who you're actually in, under authority of. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You're actually subject to Christ himself. Like stand up in the midst of those times and you don't have to take it. It doesn't mean that all your problems are gonna go away, but it definitely redefines your heart that I am under God, under Christ. Nothing can come against me and take my position, my stature, my place with God away from me. And devil, as hard as you try to come against me and rob me from the promise that God has given me, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus because you're actually under his authority. Get out. And there's something about suffering and in the midst of it, reminding ourselves, as Peter is here, of where the authority comes from. When we freak out in the midst of it and we start going, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Oh, this hurts so bad. Oh, I don't know if I can take this, yada, yada, yada. Whose authority are we under? We've kind of stepped into our own authority at that point, aren't we? Like trying to handle things on our own. Like, I don't know if I can take this. It's like, whose authority are you under? Christ. And whose authority is everything that comes against you to try to rob what Jesus has offered you? Whose authority is everything else under? Jesus himself. Jesus reigns at God's right hand. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him? 